As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Muddy Knees Media. The Black Friday slash pre-Christmas sales are well underway and from today until Friday the 4th of December, you can get yourself a subscription to The Athletic for £1 a month for an entire calendar year. That means unrivaled analysis and in-depth features from the very best football writers around, plus a breaking news service, exclusive Q&As with athletic staff and ad-free versions of all The Athletic's podcasts for just £1 per month. Sign up today at theathletic.com slash totally. Totally Football Show. This Wednesday, football lost Diego Armando Maradona. Arguably the most talented player the game has ever seen. Certainly the most iconic and beloved. Today, alongside our usual business, the midweek Champions League action, the weekend ahead, we salute the man who more than any other represented the power and inspirational impact the game can have on people and even entire nations. Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Attenzione all'Olimpico, settimo minuto. Hello, listener. Music there of Manu Chao with La Vida Tombola, marking Diego Maradona, who died on Wednesday of a heart attack. He'd been unwell for some time. I think everyone who watches the game, everyone who plays it, uh, everyone who follows the sport, we've all grown up with 
with Maradona and, and probably everyone all over the world struggling a little just to kind of take in the fact that he's gone. And I think particularly, of course, people in Argentina where Diego is now lying in state and the country uh, set for a period of mourning, perhaps unseen since Eva Peron, if that comparison doesn't sound too bizarre. We'll hear from uh, Buenos Aires uh, very shortly, actually. But with us today on the Totally Football Show, we have Karen Carney, uh, former Arsenal, Birmingham, Chicago and England winger. I'd love to see you, Karen. Oh, yeah. Thanks for having me. Not at all. Adrian Clark, another former pro now, Premier League analyst. Hello, Adrian. Hello, James. And out of the New York Times, Rory Smith. Hello, Rory. Hello, James. Yes. Adrian and Karen, as players, what was Maradona's impact? Well, he was he was a player that I grew up watching, clearly. I mean, Mexico 86, I was 11 years old, and he, he was the kid we all wanted to be in the playground. I don't think any player will ever come close to replicating what he produced in that tournament. He was just on a on a completely different level playing you know playing the game at the very highest echelon as if he was in the playground you know he he was toying with the opposition just an absolute joy to watch um really really f- fun player but also a strong character wasn't he he had to part with so much i think as a, as a former player when i when i look back at the era he played in and some of the clips and highlights that we saw of maradona down the years he got kicked from pillar to post, didn't he? And he always kept coming back and taking those same defenders to the cleaners. He, he, he was an immensely strong personality as well as a genius with the ball. The ball was was his friend, wasn't it? I think that's a really interesting thing, that the treatment uh, on the pitch, but also off it. I mean, it's so far what, what his career was compared to the kind of more managed uh, CVs of, of, of the likes of Cristiano Ronaldo and, and, and Messi, who would be the nearest we have to equivalent figures these days. Karen, was he somebody that you admired growing up? I think as a footballer, it's hard not to admire what he did on, on the football pitch. I mean, f- for me, I didn't really what, get to have the privilege of seeing him live or anything like that. But I think the, the impact that I had was his warm up, you know, that fancy warm up that he did. And I always thought, gosh, I hate warm-ups. If I could get away with doing that, I would absolutely love to be able just to, to go in the centre, have a little dance to some great music and, and just jiggle around. And, you know, even watching his warm-up, you know, his ball control, how it literally like was glued to his foot. It was just it was just incredible to watch and to have that charisma and character and personality on the pitch. I, I don't think we've, we've seen that even in this generation. How we speak about Ronaldo and Messi, I still think... In terms of personality, he's on. He was on another level, really. But um, you know, for for me as a winger and like to be dribbling of the ball, I think you know he's up there with. You know, for me, I always looked at George Best and and Pele as well, and I think you know those three are just amazing. But it's it's a sad sad time, um, but a very iconic figure for sure. For sure, curiously, his death coming on the fifteenth anniversary of of George Best uh, passing. Rory, can you what would what would football had have been if Maradona hadn't existed? Well, that's a good question. I suppose there'd been loads and loads of Argentine players who wouldn't have had to deal with the, the pressure of being the next Maradona. Everyone from Mario Ortega <laughs> to Pablo Aymar to Riquelme to Messi until Messi became the first Messi. I think f- football would have would have survived without Maradona. But I, I think it's interesting that he later in life he kind of became a, 
a cult figure and in almost the, the kind of the excesses of his life took over a little bit. And I, I was in the stadium in that game in Moscow in 2018 when Mar- do you remember when Maradona was in the stands getting extremely agitated? And it almost felt as though he, he'd become a bit of a kind of like football's embarrassing uncle and he was treated as this kind of banter figure. And I, I think that, that, that was a shame that that, that that was allowed to cloud exactly what he was for a generation. I, I saw Maradona play on TV. I never saw him play live, but I saw him. I remember the 94 World Cup. I remember the 1990 World Cup. And, and I'm 30, 38. And I guess that there'd be people who are just two or, three, two or three years younger than me who don't have any, any memory at all of seeing Maradona play. And he did just become this kind of overweight, troubled figure, battling with addiction, who you'd hear all these crazy stories about. And that, that is one side of Maradona's legacy and it's one side of his story and it's not something that should be ignored. But far more important was, was the joy that he gave people and the, the kind of marvel of, of seeing him play. And I think we did a piece today looking back on, on his, his life, I guess. And the thing that struck me is that the, the debate over who the greatest player of all time is is a, is a little bit stupid. There isn't really an answer, you know, whether it's Pele or Cruyff or Best or Messi or Ronaldo or Maradona. It's a matter of taste, really. But I don't think any players ever inspired such devotion as Maradona. There's, there's not a there's not a church of Cristiano Ronaldo. There's not there's not a cult of Pele. And the, you, you look at the way that countries are reacting, places are reacting. That obviously in Argentina, there's three days of national mourning. He's lying in state. In Naples, they're talking about renaming the stadium. I think they might have decided to rename the stadium in his honour. He's replacing Saint Paul. Maradona's bigger in Naples than St. Paul. And that, that kind of says everything. Well, um, as you, you mentioned, in Argentina currently, the country uh, entering three days of national mourning with Maradona lying in state. Uh, football writer Sam Kelly is in Buenos Aires, where he hosts the Hand of Pod podcast. And he spoke to us last night after the news came through about the reaction there. Something that we all knew was coming, obviously. Um, something that the more pessimistic among us have probably begun to guess was coming sooner rather than later because Maradona's health has been very visibly bad for quite some time now Um, and we've seen him, you know, most weeks in his capacity as manager of of Gimnasia La Plata Um, but it doesn't stop it from being an enormous shock now that it's arrived. He's a figure who represented so many things for football supporters. Anybody who watched the game worldwide. But in Argentina, what he represented, can, can you give us any kind of comparison that puts a scale on that and indeed the scale of what, what his, his death now means to the country? It's been interesting to see the amount of coverage that, that, he's, um, that, that, that he garners and, and that his family garners. Because... There obviously is not a royal family down here. They don't have an institution um, that's equivalent to that. And what they do have is football, an enormous fanaticism for it. And this one public figure who everybody can find some kind of point of unification for, right? There are people who will be happier than others to point out that Maradona was far from perfect as a person. There are people who think that it's more or less important that we talk about um, his his substance issues, his treatment of women, his politics, and so on. But one thing that basically nobody at all is in any denial of is really the central point of his life, which is that he is Argentine football. 
Um, he embodies it in a way that very, very few other, if any other players um, ever have done. And in a way that's so completely honest and, and, and forthright, not to say that everything he did in his life was honest, but his relationship with football was never anything other than love, um, that we now end up with, you know, I, as I talk to you, I'm, I'm looking on at the TV, at the news channels, and there's a, a, a camera crew over in Rosario where he played for Newell's Old Boys. I think he played eight or nine matches for them. Uh, they've named a stand in their stadium after him, and they've got people from across Rosario have, have descended to... Uh, um, to create this sort of shrine on, on a mural which listeners who visited Rosario will probably have seen on the side of the stadium. Um, that will be happening as well in, in La Plata, where Gimnasia, his last club as a manager, in fact, they're going to have to find a manager to replace him now because he was in the job when he died. Um, it's happening in La Boca, uh, down in Boca Juniors. I've not seen any TV cameras in La Paternal, incidentally, which is, um, which is where Argentinos are, are based. Um, but I'm certain that it's happening there as well um even in these you know very restricted times where we're being encouraged not to get together and not to go out into the street and everything it's not putting people off and i, I think that that really um hits home and, and drives home how much of a, a unifying figure he was and, and how overarching he was sam kelly there of the hand of pod podcast among the many reactions on Wednesday night, I don't know if you saw Andre Villas-Boas, the Marseille manager, suggesting that the number 10 shirt should be retired from all teams everywhere in football uh, worldwide. And it's kind of a, a measure of Maradona's incredible status in the game that it didn't sound completely mad, it just just mostly mad. But you, there was an element of, I know what you, you mean, Andre. If you, if you are young enough, and, and, and Rory, you, you touched on the fact that a lot of people will, will never have kind of seen this the Maradona magic except for his kind of second, third hand. Uh, there have been some really, really lovely tributes. I think one of the, the nicest was some wonderful words from Gary Lineker speaking on, on BT Sport on Wednesday night. Uh, Gary, of course, had met him, interviewed Diego, and but above all played in that infamous 1986, uh, famous rather than infamous, uh, 1986 quarterfinal in, in Mexico. And he just spoke so simply, and his kind of anecdotes illustrating how uh, how in awe even world-class football players were of Mar- Maradona. Well worth checking out that. Of course, the, there's the acclaimed documentary Maradona uh, by Asif Kapadia, which, which provides a remarkable window on, on one of the most emblematic chapters of Maradona's career, which was, was seven years in, in Naples. And there's a lovely interview as well with uh, Asif Kapadia, uh, which uh, James Horncastle did, which is on the kind of Totally Football a feed. Rory, you wrote a really nice piece as well, uh, which kind of been easy as the news broke. Not not least, how, how on earth did you kind of filter down the million things you could have said in that piece? Uh, answering that, James, would, would suggest that I have some sort of process beyond just writing some stuff down, uh, which, <laughs> which is probably over-glamorising it. I don't know, I think Maradona's one of those figures I've always been fascinated by Argentinian football uh, and Argentina as a whole, so you kind of know what you think about Maradona. Um, there's certain elements of his life, I guess, that you automatically are drawn to. But they're, 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 to be honest, they're really hard pieces to write because you could, there's there's a million, like you say, there's a million different ways to write about what Maradona meant and to interpret his story. Uh, and so I guess all you can do is, it's when, to be fair, it's when deadlines are really helpful. Do you just, there's part of you that just thinks, I just have to write this, can't really be too picky and you kind of hope it all comes together. 
Well, it, it certainly did, and, and well worth checking out that on New York Times. Adrian, you're one of, I think you're the only one of us who ever saw Maradona in his pyjamas. <laughs> <laughs> I did, yeah. I mean, what what an experience it was. So, yeah, we went to, went to Buenos Aires. Um, yeah, I worked for a company at the time that set up a, a memorabilia deal. So we, we, we lugged, I don't know, you know, hundreds of Argentina shirts and photos to, to South America. And basically we had a week to get it done. And we dropped some of the gear off at his house um, and paid the money. And and then we're told to, to wait by the phone, basically. Um, and, to, and when Diego was ready, Diego would, would see us and would, and would do the signing. And um, basically... He went AWOL for the for the whole week. Um, we went to a Boca game. He's always at Boca games, and he wasn't there. <laughs> we was like, oh dear. And then we saw the TV, and he was on television in Honduras. He'd he'd gone to Honduras um, and appeared on TV. So we were like, right, we were starting to sweat a little bit. And then it was his birthday because this was in the autumn time, and we got a phone call to say, look, he's he's on a he's on a bit of a booze up for his birthday. So you're going to have to bear with us. Um, you might need a bit of time to recover. So anyway, after a great week in Buenos Aires, um, it comes to the morning of our departure and we still need to get this done. And we get a phone call saying he's done most of it during the night, but but he's sleeping. So we said, right, we'll come round. And and he <laughs> he was in bed, um, hung over. And we had to insist on seeing him sign some of the shirts and to, to take photos and, and to whatnot. And he, so he came down the stairs in his pyjamas, uh, bedhead and everything, red pyjamas they were, and uh, he was furious. Never in my life. This is our Spanish contact uh, connection, uh, translated it afterwards. Never in my life. My mother, my father, they never wake me at this hour. Um, what blah, blah, blah. time of day was, was it? He was fuming. I mean, it was... It was midday. <laughs> you know, it was it was late morning, but he he he'd been up all night. So look, we caught him we caught him a bad time, and I was hoping to get an interview. That didn't happen, that's for sure. And it, because it had been his birthday, we bought him some expensive cigars. You know, four hundred euros worth. I think he chucked them on the floor. Um, he, oh, wow. he was he was really really grumpy. Um, I've since heard that when he did other signings, he was he was he was he was you know good value. We caught him at a really really bad moment wow, but it was it was part of the Diego experience I, kind I can't of believe that's that the story you come with on this day of all days I know <laughs> but I have this is look it's, it's a it's a it's a one-off story but it it, right. it 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 tells you that that side of his character doesn't it because he was he he was a bit of a loose irascible yeah he, he, mm. he couldn't pin him down he was his own person um but he did it and um and and <laughs> but yeah he was he was yeah very difficult character and and clearly you know he had those issues with you know party the lifestyle at, at that time but but in a way I I was glad to see that side of Diego Maradona especially as an England fan that, that, that sort of you know witnessed the hand of God um but yeah he didn't it, it doesn't affect my opinion of him as a, as a player he was an absolute genius but yeah getting that little glimpse of him, him in his pajamas being being a grumpy so-and-so was 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 a complete one-off right he could be absolutely charming as well I met him for about 0.5 of a second in 1998 at the World Cup when I was one of about, I don't know, 500 people basically uh, kind of basking in, in his glow. Um, you, you mentioned Hand of God, and of course that's been particularly in the UK media, but I think worldwide a lot of, a lot of cartoonists, a lot of headline makers have, 
have, have kind of picked up on that motif of him going to heaven and giving God his hand back. I think my favorite one, there's a Brazilian cartoon where God just tells him that the hand was always yours, Dieguito, but I would like my left foot back. <laughs> Adrian's story is, is, is really important to remember. There's, no, there's a tendency to kind of canonize people famous people when when they when when they die and it's it's understandable and it's natural and it's it's done out of respect and affection but it's not fair to maradona to to strike all that from his memory the reason he's held in so much esteem in argentina is that he summed up that idea of of what they call the pibe the that the street kid with the dirty face with the like the tricky eyes and the and the grin which Boracoto, who was the editor of el Rafico, the, the argentinian magazine he wrote this description of the pibe in 1928 32 years before Marad- maradona was born and he could have just been describing maradona it was he he drew maradona 32 years in advance it's extraordinary and maradona summed up the pibe he was the the perfect idea of a pibe and he did kind of sum up what, how Argentina sees its football culture, but also kind of how Argentina certainly saw itself as a nation, the traits that it took pride in in itself as a country. And I think although that's a very Argentinian thing, it's, it, it's something we can all understand, that, that street kid who comes from nowhere and has this gift from God. But the problem that Maradona had was that he had that brilliant talent and he summed up all that kind of impish, impudent brilliance. But he, he was never given chance to grow up. And that, that I think, is struck through with his story that... You, James, you mentioned that he—he's not his career wasn't quite as protected as Messi's or Ronaldo's, but that's just he was—he was left exposed. He didn't—he didn't have the level of protection that players get now. A lot of the, the troubles that he had, which he always, to be fair, blamed himself for. He never tried to make excuses for them. He didn't really do as much as he could about them, but he—he he never tried to blame anybody else. He always said it, it was his responsibility. Looking back, you wonder how much of it could have been stopped if—if if maybe he just had the, the slightly better luck to run into the to the right people to look after him and to guide him and in a way that he he just didn't for for quite vast periods of his career and i think that's where that that irascible petulant side came out that that adrian saw in his pajamas Mm. well with all of that he still managed to make history perform some of the most iconic acts in football or outside of football of the 20th century and have a career and an impact on the game that is absolutely unparalleled diego armando maradona After this, on to This Week in the Champions League. At Paddy Power, we know competition for the remote control can be fierce at the weekends. So, in order to give the non-football-loving occupants of your house something to do, here are some of our top suggestions. Go for a walk. Walk the dog. Walk to the shops. Go cycling. Cycle the dog. Recycle the dog. Just go! All very good options, we say. And that's not the only one. If one leg of your 4-plus-fold acre lets you down, get a free bet on all football leagues and all markets. Paddy Power. Max free bet £10, min odds 1 to 5 on each leg on an exclusive exclude shop bets, T's and C's apply, 18plusbgambleaware.org. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pierce, Ollie Kay, and the very best football writers around. Champions League midweek. And a bunch of teams now through after match day four to the uh, last 16. Chelsea and Sevilla 
book their spots on Tuesday. They both have 2-1 victories over Rennes and Krasnodar. Dortmund and Lazio looking good uh, with the showdown coming up between those two sides in Group F next week. Barcelona and Juve are both qualified as well from Group G. And in Group H, Man United are back on track, bouncing back from defeat to Basaksha here three weeks ago with a 4-1 win on Tuesday over the Turkish champions. They're three points clear of PSG and Leipzig. Uh, PSG beating Leipzig 1-0 on Tuesday. Man United needed one more point from the last two games, which will be against PSG and Leipzig. Uh, are you convinced by Man United definitively turning a corner with this game, just like they did when they beat Leipzig at Old Trafford? Karen, did you, did, what, what's your take on, on Man United and their stuttering season? This is inconsistent, like you said. I think, for me, when Bruno Fernandes plays and plays well, that's when they seem to get the edge. He's, it's a common denominator of, ever since he's, he's come in. Uh, I still think there's a lot of issues there. For me personally, I think their inconsistent form isn't down to necessarily the manager. I think it's way above that. I think they need a director of football. I think they need better recruitment to help with those players. I think they need a style. But... What I would say is whenever Manchester United are uh, up against it and are looking at Solskjaer, they come out fighting and, you know, it wasn't, you know, they won 4-1. It wasn't against a particular good opposition, I would say. And, and I know they lost the previous fixture, but I think it was a better performance. The pace and the power of them was, was probably a little bit too much. But for me, they're still, they're still off. And I agree, I saw Rio Ferdinand speaking about a lack of leadership completely see it every time I watch them live I, f- I feel the same thing but at the moment when Bruno plays well he seems to drag them through it and I think that's that's what's kind of keeping them afloat a little bit at the moment. How confident are you about their prospects down at Southampton at the weekend? <laughs> well I've watched a lot of Southampton as well and uh, I watched Southampton um, on Monday night and I think it'd be really difficult for them because I think if Southampton play the high line, which they might do, I think they'll look to counter-attack Manchester United and use the pace in behind. But will they be able to compete with the physicality? You know, is he going to get picked the right midfield to compete against Southampton? That's where the battle will be. They overload, cause issues in that midfield area, Southampton, and they, they get in amongst it. They outrun you. They press you. So um, I think there, there would be some some issues there, which just dependent on for me if they can exploit the high line of Southampton. Southampton haven't beaten United at St Mary's in over seventeen years. One other thing from Tuesday night: mentioned Dortmund's uh, fine performance against Bruges, which uh, saw a lovely free kick from Jaden Sancho. It also saw Bruges without possibly their most dangerous Champions League player, Emmanuel Denis Bonaventure, who was left out of the team after apparently storming off the team bus because he wasn't allowed to sit in his favourite <laughs> seat. Now, I mean, we all chuckled at this at the time, and indeed now. I'm guessing it might be that he's extremely superstitious. Is this a regular thing? I remember there was a, a Nasri Thierry Henry altercation on the French team bus once when Nasri had the impudence to sit in Thierry's spot. Is, is that a regular thing, Karen and, and Adrian? And what is the best seat on the bus? I think, yeah, we definitely had it at England. There was definitely seats on the, on the bus and my seat was at the very, very back in the corner and then there was, everyone had their kind of seats. But it was kind of as the team transitioned, like the more older you got, the further you got back. And, it, you know, mm-hmm. Alex Scott had a certain seat, Casey Stoney had a certain seat, people at the back. That, yeah, I think everyone had their seats. And if someone did sit in it, it would be a bit like, ooh, 
what are you doing? Like, I don't think I'd kick off or anything like that. It'd be a bit right. like, no, no, no. Like, I think Tony Duggan used to try and wind me up and, and she's like, I'm dying to get in there. But then there was a little bit of a respect that she she knew she was bantering me, but she never would. And the same for the others. So I do think there is, like, there is seats on there. Um, at club level, it, I weren't really bothered. But England, there was definitely, everyone had their squat. It's, it's really weird. I don't know why. Right. Manu Denise <laughs> was bothered, though. As I say, I I can't help but think maybe he's really, really superstitious, and and that just wrecked his whole his whole preparation for the for the game. Because I mean, footballers are crazy like that, aren't they? Ah, oh, footballers are so superstitious. Yeah, and <laughs> yeah, it's just it is mad. It is mad. Some of the things that that footballers would do. So now I get it. And and when I was a young player at Arsenal, one of the most nerve wracking things was not playing football with these guys it was sitting in the wrong seat I remember it well yeah and it was you tread I had to tread so carefully it's like no you can't sit there I mean there was that there was the loud gang at the back you probably you must have been one of the loud ones Karen I reckon because uh, back left in the Arsenal team coach I think it was Boldy it was Lee Dixon it was Tony Adams it was the sort of old school back it was the back four you know they were they were they were the sort of governors really of the bus um, but yeah, no, it was it was it was scary having to sit in the in the wrong one. I would always, no matter which team I played for or joined, I'd just always make sure I never sat on the proper card school table because okay. if yeah, you sat not. on that table, if you sat on that, you sat on the wrong table and get and get involved in a in a, a serious game of cards, then then that was a big problem. So um, mm. I, I was I was happy to play for you know play for a fiver. Along a, along yeah. a three-hour journey, that was me. But but if you sat on the wrong table, you could you could rack up quite a bill. So that that was the priority as my career went along. <laughs> All right. Uh, meantime, a Wednesday in the Champions League, a huge win for Real Madrid at San Siro, two 0 over Inter. Eden Hazard uh, from the penalty spot with his first Champions League goal for Real and only his third ever for that club. And then Rodrigo doubling up their lead. Inter stay last in the group. Qualification is now out of their hands, worryingly, for Antonio Conte. Real goes second behind the remarkable Borussia Mönchengladbach, who had a 4-0 win over Shakhtar. They've now scored 14 goals in four matches in the Champions League. Uh, Borussia Mönchengladbach, which is actually one less than, than the mighty Bayern Munich, who've scored 15, as you probably uh, deduced. In their four, they added another three this Wednesday in a 3-1 win over Salzburg. Bayern, of course, are through to the last 16. They are now on 15 consecutive Champions League victories, which is a record in the competition. Uh, the only comparable run, really, in the competition's history belonging to Marseille, who, curiously enough, uh, on that same night, achieved their 13th straight defeat. Uh, this one came at home to Andre Villas-Boas' uh, former side, Porto. Impressively, in those defeats, they've not scored a single goal. Wow. Do you think that's why he made the Maradona retire the number 10 suggestion around the world to kind of throw everybody a bone so they didn't talk right. about the about the result? Perhaps classic misdirection or maybe retire everyone's number 10s as well as the jerseys. Maybe it's that, yeah. Yeah. Man City by the way from that group have now qualified after a by now trademark 1-0 victory for Pep's men over Olympiacos. There's an awful lot of groups where that's kind of the case, aren't there, this year? The, the group stage has a bad reputation and it's not it's not always entirely warranted. But this year does feel like a particularly undramatic set of group of group stage games. And, it you know, potentially you're going to be going into the, to the last round of games, match day six, as I think we all refer to it naturally. Mm. Um, 
without a vast amount to play for. It's why actually Atalanta winning at Anfield was right. was, was a bit of a a bit of a fillip for everyone because it means that that group suddenly becomes a, bit, a little bit more interesting because most of them are kind of are kind of done. Yeah, that's that's a, a very delicately poised group. Liverpool are ahead, but they're only two points clear of Atalanta and Ajax. Liverpool have Ajax next. They didn't perform particularly well against them in the match day one clash. Atalanta, meanwhile, will be hosting Michelin, so there is every chance that Atalanta could move into the lead in, in that group ahead of their own clash with the uh, side from Amsterdam on the final match day, match day six. The Ajax goals, by the way, not sure if you caught those. If you watch one set of goals this week, uh, make it the Ajax goals against Midland. That would be my my tip. Uh, any thoughts on Liverpool losing 2-0 at home at Anfield where they just set the, the new record uh, to an Atalanta team who I think a lot of people thought had maybe kind of lost their mojo a little bit, had lost that kind of incredible momentum that they had? Yeah, they, well, they just seemed to catch Liverpool on, on a very, very rare off night, didn't they? Obviously, three of the back four are unlikely to feature at the weekend. So, so that is, is mitigating circumstances. And, and the goals were certainly not defended very well by Liverpool. But I think the story, really, of the game outside of, of the actual result is that Liverpool didn't have a shot on target. Right. First time that's ever happened in the Champions League. It's just, it's unreal, really, when you, especially when you consider Salah and, and Mane both played. I know Mane had had, had a really poor night. Divock Origi w- w- was flat as well. Although I feel sorry for someone like Divock Origi. So I've kind of been in that position before where you don't get any games and suddenly you're chucked in out of nowhere and expected to be brilliant. And it, it's just hard. It's not that easy to do that so so yeah well played Atalanta I mean to mm. to limit Liverpool to four shots is is fantastic in itself and, to, and for there to be none on target it's just it's just um yeah it's a head scratcher Liverpool were a bit like that against Michelin at home in the in their first group game at home where I think they didn't have a shot on target for for a reasonably long period of the game and it was a very kind of flat performance we probably should expect Liverpool to be a bit more up and down than than beating Leicester last week suggested just because they do have so many injuries at, at, at this point that they look they look stretched everywhere, kind of except up front. I think the the bigger thing that Klopp might be annoyed about is that if Liverpool had won that, or even to be honest, if, even if they got got appointed against Atalanta, they could probably have put the reserves out certainly against Michelin in the last game and possibly even against Ajax next week. Whereas as it stands, they may well now have to put... There's a, there's a reasonable circumstance in which they have to put out quite a strong team in both of those games to get through, right. which, given the injuries, will be a problem. Indeed. Uh, Italian press loving Atalanta, uh, by the way. Never say never with this Atalanta was Gazetta this morning. Hailing Gasparini's tactical innovation of not one false nine, but two of them, with uh, Josep Ilicic and uh, Papu Gomez, and as a result, basically packing the midfield and not letting Liverpool think uh, that was that was there that was that, that's where they achieved success. Can can he said moving it to the Premier League? Can Brighton follow that model this weekend? Uh, they are hosting Liverpool Saturday at twelve thirty. Uh, Liverpool have won six out of six against Brighton in the Premier League. In fact, the last time Brighton beat Liverpool at home, relaxed by Frankie goes to Hollywood was number one. How about that? Do you remember that, Karen? You couldn't hear it on the radio because it was it was saucy. You, I, you <laughs> probably, that was before your time, I imagine, Karen. Is that right? I, I think so. Yeah, just yeah. about. Um, but yeah, I think I do. I, I still think Liverpool will win against Brighton. I think he'll put his strongest team back out. I think I'd, 
Brighton had obviously had that good result against Villa. But for me, Liverpool are just going to be too strong. I know they, they rotated the squad and I think it's more of a mentality thing. I agree with, um, with the lads there that they've, they've changed the team and, and it's just about that mentality of getting back to the Premier League. They won't want to mess up. They've had the loss. You know, they, When they lost against Villa, then they went on a good run. Sometimes you need that little bit of a a rocket to realise, hey, we've got to put in the graph, we've got to stick together, we are in a difficult situation. But as well as Brighton are playing, and sometimes the results haven't gone in their favour, I don't see them pulling out a result against Liverpool this weekend. OK, Liverpool who are in second place, but only goal difference behind Spurs, who have, of course, a massive game coming up this weekend. Any other thoughts on the Champions League before we get on to some of the other Premier League games awaiting us? I can I ask you a question, James? Is that all right? Well, go on then. How how bad is it for Conte? He he's tipped up quite a fuss for no immediately apparent reason over the course of his entire time at Inter, <laughs> and where they just, where Sunin seems to basically do whatever he wants and then he complains about it. Mm. <laughs> they're now they're now kind of a, they're not exactly flying in the lead, and they they will almost certainly go out of the Champions League at the group stage. That's not really what he's meant to be doing. No. Uh, this is true. I think that it, it fits in uh, a little bit with Conte's kind of history with this competition. He's, he's, he's always been someone who's underwhelmed in it. He has had the spending that he asked for. There has been a, a, a kind of truce declared between him and Suning at the end of last season, uh, which he's, he's, he's observed. And to be fair, he didn't kick off after this one about how they bought in players from the wrong clubs, which has been his uh, complaint in, in, in previous defeats. But it, it does leave them in, in an absolutely terrible position. I think the thing is, he's pretty ironclad there because of how much it would cost them to sell him. And it's not really an expense I think they can they can allow themselves unless the circumstances get really, really dramatic because of financial fair play. The biggest target that he will have is still the league where, as you say, they're, they're not exactly where they should be. They're five points off the top of the table um, and... You know, Milan being the, the team on top is, is not going to help. But it, it is still early. We're only eight games into the Italian season. There is plenty of time to, to turn it around. But it's it's a, a significant blow against his, his standing there and his, his reputation as a man who sorts out Inter's problems. Never give Antonio Conte longer than a two-year contract, James. Never give him longer than a two-year contract. He's just such a combustible character that it, it would always blow up. Won't mm. it? It would always blow up. He's just so good in such a short space of time. Um, I think that's my advice for future owners. That's right up there about not getting involved in land wars in Asia. Brilliant. Uh, <laughs> let's talk. Let's talk more about the Premier League after this. We're all driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. According to their own survey, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. Remember the last time you were hiring and how slow and overwhelming it was? Well, you don't need to go through all that again. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent. And because you listen to the Totally Football Show, Indeed is going to give you a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash totally. That's I-N-D-E-E-D dot slash totally. Terms and conditions apply. 
Need to hire? You need Indeed at Indeed.com. You're listening to The Totally Football Show, sponsored by Paddy Power. Exciting news, listener. Kiss your neatly dressed stands with uplifting slogans and fruity sideline mic audio. Goodbye, because fans are going to be allowed back into grounds, uh, depending on where those grounds are, in appropriate areas of the country, it says, when England's lockdown ends on uh, this coming Wednesday. So not this weekend, but the following weekend, we could see... For grounds in in Tier 1, up to 4,000 supporters being allowed in. In Tier 2, up to 2,000. And in Tier 3, no fans. There's been some questioning, and it seems fair, about what unfair advantage this might give some teams to have their fans back, or indeed unfair disadvantage in the case of West Ham to have have their fans back. What's your feeling on this? I I find football's ability to, to kind of misread the room absolutely staggering. So as as far as we know, it looks like there'll be Liverpool, London and Brighton should be in Tier 2 from next week. Everywhere else will be Tier 3 in the oh. relevance of the Premier League. Um, Manchester, Birmingham, Newcastle, Leeds, Wolverhampton. I may be missing people. I'm not sure about Southampton. So the, the, there'll be a maximum of, kind of 2,000 fans in, in that first suite of games. And that's not ideal. It will cost the clubs money. It's the, I understand completely why the clubs are saying, look, we feel we can let more in safely. Uh, I think that you'd hope the government are thinking that as as case rates drop, as as the, as the stadiums prove they can operate the social distancing guidelines and stuff, that it will it will be far more, and it will start to pick up. And maybe in January it'll be five thousand, and you know in February ten thousand or whatever, and we'll we'll gradually return to normal. But there's been a pandemic. There is still a pandemic, and it's understandable that that the government want to be really cautious with this. And that's not for a minute to praise the way the government has handled the pandemic. But I, I think football kind of demanding that there should be more fans immediately. And I think that football centering on on this idea that there's some sort of mild competitive disintegrity because some teams will have fans is really misunderstanding the situation. It's that's not that is not relevant. It is a tiny, tiny, minor thing that exists and is real and it might be a small advantage for some teams but there's not a vast amount we can do about it and what's the alternative that we we don't let anybody have any fans in because not everybody can have fans in and you kind of look at what's happened over the last what nine months to the world and you think do you know what you, you maybe just need to take this one on the chin on football's you know uh pressing for fans to return i think for the efl clubs it's a, it's a different case really the premier league don't don't need it financially do they but but the EFL clubs were left out of the rescue package from the government they have been given some you know some funds from the Premier League which is it's going to help them no doubt but it won't see them through until the end of the season so for, for, for teams in the championship leagues one and league two this this is this is a big deal it really is and and I hope that maybe as time goes on as the as the cases drop we can we can go towards sort of you know a percentage of the capacity of the stadium potentially to you know uh, throughout the leagues, um, but every little bit will help I think in the short term. Will it give the teams advantage? No, I mean two thousand in Anfield is that re- is that is that going to really make that much of a difference? I, I don't think so. I was um, I actually went to one of the social distancing games in kind of in the restart period as a WSL game, and um, I think they let. 500 or maybe 500 more and it was a small stadium and um it was spot on 
totally fine. Social distancing was great. People adhered to it. Um, it can be done. And I think if you do it properly, I think it, it will be good. And it was nice to have some noise and crowd back in. It definitely added more intensity to the game. It definitely added more spice. The players were putting in more tackles. Not, not saying they weren't tackling before, but there was definitely an added spice towards it. I agree, you know, with, with saying that 2,000 at Anfield isn't going to make a difference. Um, but it, it will to smaller clubs. And I think that's where we, we've got to be a bit more... Um, respectful in that situation of course respectful of the pandemic but I think getting fans in it's good for people's mental health it's good for the players as well to see that and if it's done right that day for me there was no issues whatsoever I never felt threatened I never felt unsafe so it it can be done in the right way. You'd like to think that after a few weeks of of these limitations that the Premier League and the EFL, as Adrian says, which is where it's really crucial, will make representations to the government and say, look, this is how it's working. We think we have the extra capacity for this number of people to under the, exactly the same rules. Because the one thing that strikes you going to, to stadiums for the, for the behind-closed-doors games is they're massive. Football stadiums are absolutely massive. And when you, when you go to one with loads of people in it, it doesn't feel like that because you're kind of crammed in and the gangways are really full and you have to kind of dodge around people to get to where you're going. Go to it's colder stadium. without them. <laughs> it's freezing without them. You notice it's so much more, the, the heat. And um, I've not actually done one at Burnley, which is the windiest place in the world, but I imagine that is particularly, is particularly chilly. But they, they are enormous places. And some, somewhere like Old Trafford, you, you could get several thousand fans in and they'd barely be able to hear each other without even without kind of even risking anything how are you picking the fans though how are, how are they saying the 2000 who who are those how are they picking that do we know i think that'll vary from club to club and i suspect that some of them might try and do a like a local limitation thing to, to minimize public transport use because that's the other big issue is if you're is if you're you're allowing several thousand fans in and they are all on public transport then that is obviously more of a risk although that equally didn't stop them telling us to, to go to work. And I think it's something that maybe applies a little bit more in big city clubs than it does outside big city clubs, because, you know, without wanting to turn this into like a political thing, the public transport infrastructure outside London is not very good. Right. Mm. Well, uh, Manchester City Council, Birmingham City Council and Leeds City Council are tier three areas. So it's not going to be an issue there. Tier two areas with up to 2,000 fans, include Liverpool and London. So that's what it all looks like, which means that not this weekend, but in future, Selhurst Park could see 2,000 noisy fans back. That's where the weekend begins. Friday night sees Crystal Palace hosting Newcastle. Not a fixture that sees traditionally a lot of goals this. Just seven in the last seven meetings between these two sides. Key game, I would say, possibly for most people, it will be coming across town this Sunday where Chelsea will be hosting Tottenham. Karen, it's a title clash, this, between Chelsea and Tottenham. It is. I'm actually really, really looking forward to this one. I'm like, Chelsea have got goals all over the shop, left, right and centre, but you've just got Mr Instagram, Jose Mourinho, like, leading the pack. And it's just like, he knows how to get the job done. Harry Kane, Son, they're flying. Um, so it... I just feel my, my my head and my heart's edging towards Tottenham, which is really? rare for me to say as a as Chelsea former captain. But um, I think, yeah, I fancy I fancy Spurs. I just think the mentality shifted them. I think there's a belief in house. I think 
there's a nastiness which I think we saw in the documentary how he demanded it in a in a non-polite way of his players but um I, I just think they've got something about them their squad don't get me wrong Chelsea have, have built and built unbelievably well and they're exciting but there's still I think he's bought the players I think he's bringing his philosophy I just question now the next part that he has to add as Frank Lampard is that mentality where they've they've got to be ruthless they have chance after chance but they leave teams in it you know just that that winning mentality I think it will take him longer than the 18 months he's been there to produce whereas Jose, I think he's already started to imprint that in the players and you've seen a big shift in them. So Chelsea are on a run of six consecutive wins. They've also, well, Frank Lampard beat Mourinho's Spurs in both of the meetings last time around. But you think this time Mourinho's going to get the edge. He's going to get into Frank's head probably uh, with his work <laughs> on the ground or, or however. What, what, do you think, what do you think his Spurs are going to do to disrupt this incredible Chelsea run? I still think they'll counter-attack. I still think they'll bank up, be really defensively mind, defensively organised, and then they'll just hit them on the break. Not so not so much as Manchester City, because I think Chelsea are a little bit different in that aspect, but I don't think they'll do anything anything out of the ordinary. I think it, they'll keep it nice and tight and they'll just try and be clinical. They won't have too many chances. I think Chelsea would, would dominate the possession, but they just he has a way. He has a way of getting results, and I think that's where... He will plot a tactical game of just beating in this 90 minutes. And, and don't forget, Frank Lampard had the upper hand last season, but Jose Mourinho's recruited really, really well. Um, and it's a completely different side with, again, different mentality of players. And that, for me, is the difference. It's up there and that's what's going to set them to apart, I think. Yeah, I completely agree to a point. You can certainly make a case for, for Spurs hurting Chelsea on the counter. Thiago Silva, Silva, you know, an ageing centre-back, two very attack-minded full-backs. But we saw a different side to Chelsea at Manchester United. They were more circumspect. They've definitely discovered a clean sheet mentality, which was something that was that was sorely lacking previously. So, uh, And we've all seen it. We're all talking about it. Spurs... With Kane dropping into the midfield, Son and Bale and or, or Bergwijn, whoever it is, making runs in beyond, we know what's coming, and Lampard knows what's coming. So surely there will be a a response from Chelsea to that. And on all I say on Kane and City, I can't believe they fell for it with Kane dragging the centre half short to then go in behind for that song goal with Conte with Jorginho in the in the Chelsea midfield. Surely they, they, they're going to crowd that space. They're going to deny Frank Lampard the opportunity to do what he's done to every other team so far this season. Surely they won't fall for it. And if they don't, they've got, they've, they've got the foul power at the other end. And, and I think with Alderweireld missing, Ziyech, his, his deliveries into the box can, can hurt Spurs. So, yeah, I, I can, you can make a case for Spurs, but, but I actually, I'm, I'm leaning slightly towards Chelsea. But what's, what's really interesting about it is that they're both obviously Spurs are top, so I guess that they should have that the slight like momentum edge and the belief edge. But they're both on really good runs. They're both in really good form. There's reasons, as Karen and Adrian have just sort of laid out, to to believe in both of them. The the one thing that I think is really important in in a game that's that finely balanced is that this will be kind of this is a chance to see where both of them actually stand against a, a rival. And with Spurs, obviously, we had that last week when they beat City. Chelsea's unbeaten run has kind of been quite kind fixtures, I would say. They've not really been challenged. So Krasnodar, Burnley, Wren, Sheffield United, Newcastle, 
Wren. Yeah, I take your point there. Even the draw at Man United, which was which was a creditable result, and there's 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 no there's no reason to complain about getting a nil-nil draw at Old Trafford, even against a slightly diminished United. It it's not they've they've yet to make that statement performance. So I think with it's a test for both, just they're both good teams. But with Chelsea in particular, it's it's a chance to maybe measure whether that the turnaround that Lampard seems to have overseen in the last what six weeks is actually a turnaround or whether it's been a kind of quirk of a relatively kindly set of fixtures. Mm, interesting. Uh, this will actually be the 1,000th Chelsea game of the Abramovich era. Uh, no doubt there'll be loads of op-eds about his impact on the English game. Uh, 16 major trophies for Chelsea in 17 seasons under Roman. Uh, the big question, I think, remains where he was actually flying that day when he went over Stamford Bridge, because it was always popularly Spurs that was his mm. destination, and this could have been Spurs's period of, of, of unparalleled success. But recently there's been different versions of his flight path. Did I hear one where he was actually going to Craven Cottage, or he looked at Craven Cottage first of all, but they were digging their turf up, and he went, no, not that one. Rory, can you shed any light on this? So I, the, the version of the Craven Cottage that hurt story that I heard was that he, he really liked the ground by the river. Okay. But, but was then told, it's a beautiful setting, Craven Cottage, but was then told that Fulham were, I Fulham. guess, like a bit rubbish or whatever, yeah, that they, they weren't kind of the, the vehicle <laughs> for his dreams. But there's also the story which is told in The Club, which is Josh Robinson and John Clegg's book about the rise of the Premier League, which is very good, uh, that I think David Dean tells, where he is informed that Abramovich would have liked to buy Arsenal, mm. but was told, I think, by USB, the bankers, sorry, not USB, that's the memory stick, mm. uh, told by UBS, the bankers, uh, that Arsenal was not for sale, despite the fact that it very much would have been interested in talking to Abramovich. So it could also have been Arsenal. Crikey. Well, Chelsea it was that he landed at, and 1,000th game coming up of his era. But could it be Spurs who are rushing in a new golden period this Sunday? We shall see. Elsewhere this weekend, Man City scoring blues might get the urgent medicine they need uh, with a visit from Burnley. Burnley who have lost 5-0 in each of their last three trips to the Etihad. That's a remarkable record. As is the fact that City have had 95 shots in their last six league games and scored five goals. Uh, is, is is Burnley turning up enough or do they need David Silva to come with them? You know what, I've I've said it a couple of times before, I think, um, Adrian, I think you might agree or disagree, but I think a team reflects their manager and you're going to be like, what? Let's Pep Guardiola. But for me, I haven't seen a freshness in Pep Guardiola. You know, if he sees out this contract, he would have been at Manchester City for seven years. It's the longest he's ever been at any club. The way he puts in his energy to get teams to play, he's I haven't seen that spark in him in quite a while. And I actually saw it in Jose Mourinho, and now I feel like he's got it back. Um, I haven't really seen that spark in Pep Guardiola that reflects then on his team that are high energy, high pressing. Um, when they get in, get in there, they're exciting, they're dynamic. Even in his interviews, I don't see that in him. He looks he looks tired. He looks doesn't look himself. And I think as a player. I look back to how I play and I think, why did I play like that? And then I look at my manager and it's like, that was a reflection of them because it filters down, it doesn't filter up. And I think potentially he signed this new contract and I think he'll be given a war chest. They're going to be in a transition period. They have lost a lot of key players, but I was asked to do a tactical piece on Manchester City this week about why they're not scoring. I said, there's no point. I said, why? I said, they're creating 
more chances or the same amount of chances that they have done when they when they previously won the titles. They're just not put in the back of the net. And I think that sometimes comes down to spark and players. There's nothing tactically you can say about Manchester City. They play the same way. They're creating the chances. They're just not putting them away. Um, but I, I do look at Pep Guardiola and I think he's he's not the same when he first came in and I don't think he's had that impetus with his energy on his players. Yeah, they're just taking the, the extra touch around the final third. It's That's where the fluency, the sharpness that you're talking about it comes into play. The big, the big change was supposed to be the new number two, wasn't it? That he brought in. Um, Rory will know more about him potentially than than me, but he was supposed to be the fresh voice, the the player to to maybe um, get those players firing again, um, so that then they don't get sick of of hearing just Pep's voice. I think that yeah, that that's really interesting. So it's Juan Malilo is his is his new number two, who was kind of one of his coaching idols. And he, it's a really it's a really nice story that he appointed him. That he kind of Lilo's had this kind of really checkered managerial career, but he's he's a coach of kind of outsized influence. So he invented four two three one, which I always think is <laughs> of course like an, did, yeah. an yeah. amazing claim to fame. <laughs> um, and he he played. You know, Guardiola went to Mexico to play under him, and he's had this. You know, he he's coached in Colombia and uh, various smaller teams in Spain and stuff. Nice, quite sweet story that that Guardiola's given him a chance at a massive club as an assistant. But when he appointed him, I did think. That it's a bit risky because he's basically he's bringing in someone who thinks like him, and I I, do, I did wonder at the time whether Guardiola maybe needed not that I I'm not in a position to tell Pep Guardiola how to run his career, but I wonder whether part of the advantage that they had with say Arteta, or even in in, in a previous life for Guardiola with Tito Villanova was it it's someone who maybe has a slightly different perspective. Not not it's not like he I'm saying he should appoint like Sam Allardyce as his number two and <laughs> so, so Guardiola's like passing it around and he's demanding to knock it long. But I think I just wonder whether there's there's too much one way thinking at at City mm. and the, they maybe could have used a slightly different angle of attack almost on the coaching mm. staff. Well, Arteta of course is now down. At Arsenal, uh, who also aren't scoring any goals. Uh, they're not uh, having many shots either. Only five clubs have had fewer shots than Arsenal this season. Karen, Adrian, not sure what you make of that. Is that what you'd anticipated with Mikel Arteta's arrival? They've got Wolves coming up this Sunday at 7.15, who haven't won at Arsenal since 1979. Good Lord, that's a long time. Huh. No, but they drew one apiece on their last two visits, and they're just the kind of team Arsenal don't want to face this weekend because they're they're so hard to break down aren't they well especially if they revert as expected back to the back three with Connor Cody coming in so yeah they were looking to come up against a team that would gift them chances they're going to be disappointed aren't they on on Sunday night it's it's for me it's just a balance I, I still trust that Mikel Arteta is is the right man to fix Arsenal going forward he's, he's worked on the off the ball work and and that's been significantly better but the balance between structure and tactical discipline and freedom and spontaneity, mm. which, as Karen knows, you need to give forward players. Forward players don't want to be told you have to do move here, move there, and, and this is how you attack. They, they, they need licence to just be off the cuff. The balance is just too much in the way of, of, of tactical structure for me at the moment when Arsenal have the ball. They just need to be let off the leash and, and to have a bit of fun with it. Um, hopefully... They'll go with the Bamiang up top on his own again, and and give him longer to to make an impact there. Um, but but he needs runners, and and you look, I mean, Karen, Karen will know this. 
you look at other teams, you look at Spurs, the dynamism of players to join in on the counter to make runs in beyond Kane. You look at, at, at Chelsea to some degree with Werner. All teams that are flying this season. Villa, when they were brilliant against Arsenal. Grealish and Barkley and Watkins. Forward run, forward run. Arsenal aren't stretching defenders. Arsenal are playing in front of teams. Um, they just they just need to, to play with more intensity and create those angles that you need to, to, to drag defenders out of their comfort zone. It's, it's not rocket science. Karen, how do you feel about that? I think I love Mikel Arteta. I, I like what he's trying to do. I, I agree that he's having to sort them out defensively. Before he came in, they were getting done far too much on the counter-attack. They looked too open. But as a player, would I like to play in that team at this moment in time? No, I wouldn't because I was a creative, off-the-cuff player. You, I couldn't tell you what I was going to do, let alone be told what I was going to do. So I would feel quite restricted and I can see why Pepe doesn't look happy. William hasn't picked up his form that he has since his move. Aubameyang's goals have dried up. Lacazette, you have to have the ability to go and play what the opposition give you, that element. And whether he will eventually do that in time, he at the moment he might be like, right, I'm just getting this defensively solid and I get the few players in, we will flip to that. But I think they've got the players to do that there now. Um, there's too many restraints on them. There's too many... It's like they're playing attacking with an extra weight on their back and it's not really exciting. I don't see any flair. I've watched them. I'm watching them tonight. I'm going to the game. I've watched them a lot lately. I don't see any creativity Um, and I agree everything's in front there's no stretch and behind there's no number 10 pocket to to dazzle it's just I remember watching Arsenal for for years and I could guarantee every time you put on the TV or watch Arsenal play their goals under Arsene Wenger would be probably goal of the season they're passing they're, they're just it was just happy it was just joyous don't see that in this current Arsenal side but I still believe he's the right man but whether he needs to bring the players in to help him, maybe so. Or have Big Sam as his number two, which is... <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> no, that'd be even more defensive. <laughs> no. Uh, give, give players less to think about, James. I think that's 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 always the mantra, especially for forward players. I played for a manager at Stevenage, Paul Fairclough. He'd give you a note before every game and it would have one thing on it. Just one thing. Today, right. this is what I want from you. Okay. One thing. And I think, that, I think sometimes, yeah, we can overcomplicate matters. You have one job. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, not sure how that approach would go down with Marcelo Bielsa, whose Leeds will be facing Everton Saturday tea time. First ever meeting between Ancelotti and Marcelo Bielsa. Ancelotti uh, telling Gazetta uh, back in October, we never met. I'd like to have dinner with him and listen to him talk about football. Which, uh, yeah, I'm sure that amazing. Would. That's amazing. They've never played each other before. Hmm. Indeed. Leeds have never won in the Premier League at Goodison Park. That's quite amazing as well. Uh, the last time they came away with three points from uh, that venue was uh, August 1990, before football began. And what are their prospects this time, do you think, against an Everton side who seem to lose their way? Not sure Richarlison's return had a big impact last time out, but how, how well do you think they're going to cope with Marcelo Bielsa's side? I, th- I think Leeds will provide Everton with a tougher test than Fulham. Uh, and to be fair, Fulham in the second half provided Everton with a surprisingly tough test. It's, this is going to sound like a complete cop-out, but it's the sort of game that Everton could win relatively comfortably, sort of 3-1, three, three, 
or they would they would be outplayed by a team that that just happens to catch fire. I think we're going to see this a lot with Leeds, and there's been a bit of a backlash towards Leeds because wherever we saw it this week with Bielsa's nomination for the FIFA World Coach of the Year, that that whatever Bielsa does, there is a chorus of people immediately saying, "Well, people are only saying that it's Bielsa, and everyone loves him." And you sort of think, well, actually, he's done quite well to have a 30-year career, despite the fact that any time he does anything, there's loads of people saying, no, he's rubbish all of the time. Um, but I think the, the thing with Leeds is that he, they do have a kind of iconic coach who is one of the best of his generation. They do have some very talented players, but they've also got a lot of players who who were with them in the lower reaches of the championship. And there will be days where it doesn't work and there will be days where they lose heavily at Crystal Palace. So I think you'd expect probably expect Everton to win but it, it will not be easy and it's not it's certainly not kind of the case that just because Leeds are a bit shaky defensively that Everton will be able to run run riot. I think Leeds will make chances against pretty much everybody they play this season. Well, Everton need three goals to win a game at the moment, don't they? That's their problem. Um, 13 conceded in the last six. Um, not conceded less than two in any of those games. Nine in four home games. They went to a back three, didn't they, at Fulham? And they looked even dodgier, I thought. Um yeah, I think Leeds runners from deep. We know they've got great movement. I think they can cause them a, a world of problems in the game. So yeah, I expect this to be one of the games of the weekend. Actually, I can see both teams, both teams scoring, and it being a kind of an end, end to end affair. Super. That's going to be Saturday tea time. By the way, very shortly, I'd be interested to hear who you think should have been on that list of nominees for the FIFA Best Award for Coach of the Year. As it stands, it's Bielsa, Zinedine Zidane, Jurgen Klopp, Julian Lopetegui. And Hansi Flick, I say, is it sad that that's who it's going to be? It's not like it's going to change after a discussion. <laughs> I, I don't think anyway. Uh, but uh, but before we get onto that, still coming up uh, this weekend, you've got Saturday after that match, 8 o'clock, West Brom against Sheffield United, which is a relegation six-pointer. The only two teams in the entire country, or at least in the 92, who haven't won a league game yet. Crikey. Uh, who's that going to change for this time around? Karen. I don't know, you know, I fancy West Brom. Yeah. I think about what? Um, I just fancy West Brom. I think I think Sheffield United have really been struggling. I mean, I, I really like the manager. I like what they've done, what they've achieved. But I think for me, it's never looked like scoring. And defensively, and now without Jack O'Connell and kind of, I think teams have worked them out a little bit more. I think second season syndrome. I think when you spend £20 million on Brewster, who hasn't really played in the Premier League, the ball in the Premier League, to put that, on his shoulders. I watched him live at the under-21s game. He's a talented lad. He really is. But is he a lad with that young age and lack of experience to drag Sheffield United out of a relegation battle? I'm not so sure. And McBurney as well. So um, I just want to see West Brom in this. I think Billich knows what he's got to do. Um, I think I've seen a bit of dynamism throughout West Brom at times. They look shaky. But then they'll come and shock you like they have done against a few teams. So I don't know. I just maybe I'm being a bit Midlands biased, but I uh, I fancy West Brom this this for this game. Yeah, it's a good stat knocking around in regards to Sheffield United as well. Um, last season, obviously, the success built on the three five two, hard to play against. Everybody knew their job in their in their sleep, didn't they? Very settled side. Obviously, they've changed changed things up. They've had to replace some of the players. Um, last season. 12 teams faced more shots on their own goal than Sheffield United. So they, they kept teams at arm's length brilliantly. Mm. We all know that. This season, only one team has faced more shots and that's um, mega defensive Newcastle United who practically sit on their six-yard box. So so look, it, it, 
that that I think as well as the the problems at the other end of the pitch that Karen touched on, that's why they're struggling. Um, but yeah, it's um, the the framework is not not what it was, unfortunately. Um, so yeah, I, I I think I'm with Karen here. I think West Brom have shown signs of improvement. I think they can win this. Okay, twelve league games without a victory for the Blades, going back to last season. Two games coming up on Monday. We'll touch on these more in Monday morning's Totally Football Show at 5.30 Monday afternoon in the Burnley Baggies or Fulham slot. It's Fulham this time. They're going to be hosting <laughs> Leicester and then West Ham Villa later on the David Cameron Confusion Derby. That'll be an <laughs> intriguing game. Very good. More from the guys very shortly but now it's time to get some odds and more from our friend Lee Price. Hello listeners. Hope you're well. I'll start with a question. Who gave the Totally Football Show permission to use my voice and dad jokes? Time to investigate. Oh, what's that? Paddy Power did, i.e. my employers. Ah, as you were. Investigation over. In a week of tears, and indeed tears, we have a weekend of top-tier football to look forward to. Are you ready for it? Yeah? Okay, here goes. And we'll also see West Brom take on Sheffield United. Feels good, man. I would say that's slightly harsh, but then again, both teams are odds-on to get relegated this season, so it's not harsh at all. Elsewhere, I suppose Chelsea versus Tottenham would have to be considered a Tier 1 clash, and we make Frank Lampard's men the favourites here. They're evens to win, which means better pound, win a pound. Simple. But the real game of the weekend is obviously going to be Everton against Leeds, although I do suspect it'd be a bit like that weird boxing bout Mike Tyson's having this weekend, with no knockout blows, a.k.a. I like the look of the draw. Bye-bye now. You can find out these odds and more at paddypower.com or the Paddy Power app. Prices are accurate at the time of recording. It's over 18s only. Terms and conditions apply. And when the fun stops, stop. Just to wrap up then, uh, FIFA announcing their nominees for the best awards for men's and women's players, men's and women's manager, all that. The most controversial one, at least judging by my uh, Twitter feed, being the five that have been put forward for the FIFA best manager or coach, as they call it, of the year. Zinedine Zidane, Jurgen Klopp, Julian Lopetegui, who won the Europa League with Sevilla, and Hansi Flick, who's uber-dominating everything with Bayern Munich. Who would you give it to? Who would you leave off that list? Who would you put in that list? I'd Well, I'd be inclined to knock out from the list uh, Zidane and Lopetegui at least. I think you can make a case for Flick and Klopp that's fairly, fairly obvious. Bielsa... It's a bit of a strange one, but I, I do wonder how much it kind of speaks to his resonance in South America that, that his story seemed so captivating to people. But you can make a case that he shouldn't be on there anyway. The one that I think is really surprising he's not on there is Gasparini, right. who I would say had a as good a season as anybody else. To take Atalanta to a Champions League quarterfinal is astonishing. I, I, I find that... I f- the, my main reaction to that list was just how unimaginative it was. Right. I think you can make a case for Gasparini. I think you can make a case for Jorge Jesus for what he did at Flamengo. And I think this is going to sound really hipster, and I apologise. <laughs> this weekend, Birded Limpt won the Norwegian title for the first time in their history, playing a, a style of football that that has apparently captivated Norway, like made people like fall in love with the elite Syrian again. They've got this ho- young, homegrown team. They they play this. They cap- I spoke to their captain a little while ago, and he's described it as a kamikaze style of football. They've they've kind of energised the whole area. They they they're the pride of the north of Norway, and that. I do think it's a shame that people like Kessel Knutsen, the coach there, 
that FIFA, as the games, the governing body of the game all over the world, that FIFA doesn't sometimes use some of these awards maybe not to do the obvious thing. So it's, re- it's really easy to say Hansi Flick very clearly will win Coach of the Year because he's won the treble, and quite right too. But you could maybe nominate a couple of people who don't get all the limelight rather than thinking we'll take the champions of Germany, England, Spain, the winners of the two major European competitions and the, the famous person we've heard of from England, another major nation. I think just think it really smacks of a lack of imagination. Right. Auntie Flick in his defence took over a Bayern side that was, although they'd performed hugely well in, in for example, the game at, at Tottenham Hotspur, um, that was slightly misfunctioning and, and the immediate impact and the way that all the players elevated their game within days of his arrival was, was something that's quite remarkable. We've almost become kind of inured to it now because they have been so relentless. But I think you're absolutely right. And another name I'd throw into your list of people that should have been recognised, Pippo Inzaghi. Pippo Inzaghi, everybody, uh, taking <laughs> Benevento up. Um, just extraordinary. It, it could have been, by the way. I mean, Hansi Flick has to win it, surely. Yeah. But, but great shouts from the pair of you. It could have been Wenger. Do you remember when Bayern were looking for a new manager? Mm. Big story at the time was that they were going to bring Arsene Wenger out of out of retirement to take over. He's, you know, it, it, this could have been an even better story. But might not have happened. They might not have been as successful. But, but yeah, Han, Hansi Flick. Um, yeah, I mean, he could not have done anything better, could he? I suppose not. I suppose not. Karen. No, I totally agree. Um, Flick for me to win. Julian Nagelsmann maybe as well could have been in there in terms of. You put Bielsa in there and kind of styles. He's a young manager and right. you know what he was doing. But um, I think Bielsa's is an interesting one because of the impact he's had on other managers. It might not be actually on his team, but it might be his impact he's had on other managers that have then influenced their teams, if that makes sense. So, you know, when Pep Guardiola flies to speak to him for seven or eight hours and then he, he kind of is thought-provoking for him and how does that then influence his style? So I think... I think that's why he'd be on there as well. And as as well, he's done amazing for Leeds. But Nogsman as well for me, dynamic, young, um, different. And I, I, I agree with Rory. Why don't we put different people on there? Well, indeed, those awards I imagine will be coming up. What, it's November now. They're usually done in September. I'm not sure when the when the verdicts are going to be, but I'm sure we're all waiting breathlessly to see who FIFA give the gongs to. That brings us to the end of this Totally Football show. Brilliant to have you with us, Adrian, Karen and Rory, and look forward to seeing you again soon. Totally Football show returns on Monday morning with our reaction to the weekend's game. So I do hope you'll join us for that, listener. In the meantime, have a super weekend. And from all of us here, it's goodbye. You've been listening to the Totally Football show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Keep up to date with everything totally at thetotallyfootballshow.com and follow us at The Totally Show on Twitter and Insta. Check out all of the Athletics Football podcasts on Apple, Spotify and all the usual places or listen ad-free on the Athletic app. The Totally Football Show is a Muddy Knees Media production and sponsored by Paddy Power. Muddy Knees Media.